Windsor, Ascot, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. The voice, River Radio, of the Thames Valley. Hello, it's Turning Pages here on River Radio. We'll be discussing some great books and our favourite reads. Exciting news on Atta Girls. And we'll be celebrating British Literary Prizes. Hello there. I'm Heather Adams and you're listening to Turning Pages with Julian and myself. Um, and the sun is shining. Good morning, Julian. Good morning, Heather. Yes, it is. It's lovely. Uh, great. How, uh, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. And yourself? Very, very, very well indeed. Um, every week we aim to delight you with an eclectic mix of recommended books to enjoy from the latest bestsellers to our favourite classics because great books aren't just on the bestseller list. So if you love reading or you just want to know what uh, what's happening in the world of books then this is your programme. As always we've got a fun-filled hour designed for you this week. Indeed we have. And last year we discussed a novel based on the Atta girls who transported planes around Britain uh, in World War II. And we've got an exciting update on that story uh, for you later. Oh, sounds good. And we'll be looking at the many, many book awards in Britain. Yes, indeed we shall. Uh, But to start the show, uh, we've been scouring the papers, as we do each week, to spot interesting uh, book news for you. So I think let's get started with a quick roundup of what we found in the press this week. Well, I saw a great story, actually, and uh, it might not necessarily be thought of straight away as uh, a book story because it's the 2022 Museum of the Year. And actually, a fabulous museum in Oxford has just been shortlisted for this prestigious award. And it celebrates, the museum celebrates the importance of storytelling. It's called the Story Museum, and it's going to vie with four of Britain's other smaller cultural institutions to win the coveted prize of £100,000. And they've already benefited from £15,000 for reaching the shortlist, which is really good news. So the Story Museum is on a mission to help improve literacy. Here you're able to explore a thousand and one stories in all their magnificent variety. You can follow the White Rabbit into Wonderland, walk through the wardrobe into Narnia, fly through frozen skies, or perhaps you'd prefer to hear ancient tales whispered from across the world, or rediscover favourite books and films. You can even conjure up your own stories in their magical classroom. Now, although a small museum, it's generated 80,000 visitors in a year, which is a really fabulous. It's a great day out and it's not too far away from here. So good luck to the Storm Museum in the Museum of the Year Awards. 
That sounds a really, really interesting museum, and I think it's it, it's something on the list to uh, to go and visit. Yeah, it sounds it does, really great. It does sound yeah, great. Yeah, it really does. It sounds super, super. Well, I, I just have a short piece here, which I think is something um, very, very exciting and positive. The publisher Bloomsbury is about to hire one hundred new members of staff across all areas of the company, and the aim is to help existing employees manage their workloads and achieve a better work life balance. Now that. I think is something really positive you know when people are saying oh well you know civil servants oh well i just want to work from home i don't want to do anything else whereas this is actually being very positive so if some are going to be staying at home there are going to be additional staff to assist with that so service in the case of bloomsbury publishing is really going to be enhanced i think that's i think that's fantastic yeah and well done bloomsbury well done bloomsbury and also it's interesting i think we need to get everyone wants to get into publishing don't they so it's a lovely opportunity i'm sure um to work in publishing not necessarily on the editorial side but on all the different areas as well well exactly because there are many many areas in in publishing and i think a lot of people think oh well we'll just oh yeah i just want to sit around reading books is what editors do well editors do a lot more than that they go to Um, lunch as well yeah but that's very true yes and have a cup of tea in the afternoon um but you know there's sales and there's there's production you know that's that's the physical creation of the books you know people tend to forget that you know what you hold in your hand that paper that somebody has in the production department has organized that they're buying the paper they're 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 buying the print etc so many many jobs it's a very it's a very complicated system isn't it so yeah it is absolutely it is now totally different Looking at the Times top 10 bestseller list, what should pop into number one is the Wim Hof Method by Dutchman Wim Hof. And um, it's the book that goes along with the BBC TV programme, Freeze the Fear. Now, Julian, I don't think this is your sort of thing, but have you watched it? Well, no, I haven't. And you're quite right. It's not really my sort of thing, sitting in a bath of frozen water. Um, but also partly the reason why I haven't watched it is I don't have a television anymore. Mine went foot. Oh, no. Yes. Well, that's very good for your reading. Well, it um, is. Exactly. Yes. So um, that actually, it was me. I sort of put a curse on it. <laughs> yeah. well, well, in fact, it was rather it was rather sad because I went to turn on, um, turn it on to watch uh, the Duke of Edinburgh's funeral and it and it it, it went west with, oh, the, no. with the with the poor old duke. So oh, yes, well. I was really sorry about that. I think it might be time for another. But let me tell you about this program, or rather do, do. about the book. Uh, so the book tells the life story of Wim Hof, who uh, he describes himself as an extreme athlete, and his mind over matter philosophy is all to do with ice cold water. Uh, now I did watch a little bit of the TV program, and uh, I've got to say it's a bit weird wild and wonderful because you have celebrities jumping into ice lakes um and which is very bizarre but they also take the benefit of a cold water shower and i've got to say that i'm an advocate of that really i I am indeed yes i think it's very good for uh, livening you up now obviously (laughs) only to be done under (laughs) medical supervision (laughs) but if anybody's out there who enjoys uh wild water swimming you and you know yourselves the benefit of a quick dip in the ice cold water um Mm. so anyway the um uh wim hoff has actually had quite a traumatic time his uh his first wife committed suicide and he was absolutely distraught and he found that actually embracing his fear and in particular cold water uh, methods really help support his mental health. So it's a really interesting story. So the book, I think, deservedly going into number one. 
Mm, indeed. Well, I've uh, my little snippet here is um, about the talented um, author and scriptwriter Anthony Horowitz, um, who has written a new James Bond book, which is coming out this month, and it's called With a Mind to Kill. Uh, and it's the last in a trilogy of the Bond novels that um, uh, Anthony Horowitz had been asked to write by the Bond estate, following in the footsteps of other authors who had also been asked by the estate, such as Sebastian Fawkes and um, and William Boyd. Um, and they'd been commissioned to write Bond books as well to continue the legacy of 007. Now, this time, the baddie, and now bearing in mind the story was written a long time before the invasion of Ukraine, um, (laughs) the baddie is a psychopathic Russian, no less. And the book has been set in the latter part of James Bond's working life, where Fleming's 1965 novel, The Man with the Golden Gun, finished. Now, Horowitz's previous two books straddled 007's career, starting with Forever and a Day, which was at the beginning of Bond's career, and Trigger Mortis, which I I think is a great title, yes. which focused on his mid-career. Now, with a mind to a kill, uh, it begins with a funeral um, after a, a botched attempt to um, to bump off M um, by a brainwashed 007 um, agent in Golden Gun. Now, M pre- uh, a pretend funeral is now arranged and faked to fool the Russians in order to allow Bond, who is now fully recovered, to go back behind the Iron Curtain and ingratiate himself with the evil Colonel Boris and collect intelligence to discover the dastardly plot to destroy the West. Hmm, uh, well, there seems to be some links there. <laughs> now, interestingly, Colonel Boris is a character that was dreamed up by uh, Ian Fleming himself, and he has appeared twice in Fleming's books, once in the beginning of uh, A Golden Gun, but he was also mentioned in passing in From Russia With Love, but he's always been a minor character who's never ever spoken a word, um, but he's been seen, so it's a perfect opportunity to exploit Colonel Boris in this book. That's a great idea, actually, uh, looking at the characters in in famous books that haven't been sort of used, just minor characters. Yes. um, I don't know if you ever listened to The Archers, uh, but there's a, there's a range of characters um, in the archers that never say anything. They're always spoken about, but they never, <laughs> right. never really say anything. <laughs> they, they always come very. Um, it's very entertaining on the uh, the um, right. the archers websites talking right. about them. Well, it's also about a bit like Mrs. Mannering in uh, Dad's Army, isn't yes. it? Not only you don't hear her, you don't even see her. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> now, who have you? Does anybody read Penelope Lively out there? Because she is a fabulous novelist, but she has vowed never to write another book. She's 89 now and has written more than 50 novels, children's books and short stories. But now amidst, it is time to bow out. And I've got to say 89, that's, that's fair to retire, isn't it? Well, I think so. So while she'll miss writing, she claims to be looking forward to getting back to reading instead. Now, Penelope Lively, for those who don't know, has twice been shortlisted for the Booker Prize for her first novel, the very first novel she wrote, The Road to Litchfield, and then again for According to Mark. Now, three years after that, in 1987, she won the Booker Prize for her highly acclaimed novel, Moon Tiger, which was often seen as one of the very best Booker winner ever. Booker winners ever, even though it wasn't included in the Best of Booker Awards decided for the 40th anniversary. There was always, I think, a bit of snobbery about her books, as though they felt it was just sort of women's fiction in a way. Right. Mm. Um, those were the days when uh, the two were, were separated. 
Anyway, uh, Moon Tiger spans the time before, during and after World War II and moves backwards and forwards through time, beginning as the story of a woman who, on her deathbed, decides to write a history of the world, which develops into a story of love and incest and the desire to be recognised as a free-thinking woman of the time. Now, if you haven't read a Penelope Lively book before, can I just quote you a line? Because her book, Language is beautiful. This is explaining what a moon tiger is, just in case you don't know. The moon tiger is a green coil that slowly burns all night, repelling mosquitoes, dropping away into lengths of grey ash, its glowing red eye a companion of the hot insect rasping darkness. That's just a lovely, mm. a lovely line descriptive. So it's really atmospheric in its own right. But this image takes on more power when you know that this moon tiger comes into focus because it lies between two lovers, Claudia and Tom, on one of their last snatched nights together in Cairo during the Second World War. Tom is about to return to the front line and his death, and the two have barely even had time to get to know each other. I strongly recommend this book. Mm, good, good. Well, as we uh, as we mentioned earlier, um, we we're returning to um, um, Atta Girls um, by Paul Olivson Stab. Now, Heather and I um, uh, uh, we were invited to the RAF Club in Piccadilly by the author Paul Olivson Stab for the launch of his new novel, which is called Atta Girls, uh, which we featured in our program about Spitfires last year. Now, since July last July, Paul's been very very busy uh, working on Atta Girls and had got in touch with us both recently letting us know how uh, how um uh, of some exciting developments linked to his book which we thought we, you, you might like to hear about for those who'd listened to the spitfire program last week and written the book to the attention of our newer listeners who have recently joined us by listening through dab radio which was not available to us last summer it was only uh, we only had the um the app and the uh, online then now attic girls is a novel dramatizing the story of molly rose who was one of the young female pilots to join the air transport auxiliary um, or as it was called uh, for short ATA which was a civilian organization responsible for ferrying thousands of million uh, thousands of military aircraft the length and breadth of the country during World War II and, and they tirelessly supported the RAF's endeavors to keep um, this nation's skies as clear as possible of enemy aircraft now the task that faced uh, Molly and her colleagues was tremendous because each time they took to the skies not only did they not know what type of aircraft they'll be flying until almost the last minute but also all aircraft that they flew were without armaments no radios and no navigation equipment which meant they were having to be extremely nimble to get out of the way of any uh, marauding german aircraft that came across the path or dealing with poor visibility as the weather closed in because they had no navigational instruments to help them the reading that will um, follow after Heather's chat with Paul will give you a taste of what Molly had to face and how she had to deal with the matter when something large and terrifying came out at her at great speed. But let's listen to Heather and Paul's conversation first. Um, it's about the it's based on a true story of 22 year old Molly Rose, who was a pilot at the Air Transport Auxiliary, or the ATA, as they were known, during World War II. It's about a, a group of young women who took to the skies to do their bit, basically. And, and the story highlights how their 
bravery and determination played a vital part in in changing the course of history, in fact. It's a history that uh, is not as well known as actually it should be. So how do you get interested in the the Air Transport Auxiliary in the first place? Well, I first first heard about the organisation after a party in London and as one does. And uh, I heard about the group of young women. There were men as well, of course, in the ATA, but the, the story I was told was about a group of young women that, that did all the ferrying work and, and who, who risked their lives against uh, incredible odds and, and, and amongst huge challenges, both on the ground and in the air. And my enthusiasm was, was piqued when I met Graham Rose at the ATA Museum, actually, in Maidenhead. Okay. And Graham is the son of Molly Rose, who is the heroine aviatrix of the story. And when Graham told me the story, the hairs on my arms were standing up, and I thought, this is just incredible. Because it was one of those stories that I thought, well, had had it not been Graham, it, it, it's difficult to believe that someone could go through so much and still carry on. And I, th- I thought, wow, what an inspiration to women and girls everywhere to to firstly to embrace the opportunities as Molly did and then to come through the, the things that happened to her which which are really truly <laughs> unbelievable and the, th- the situations that she found herself in and I thought well this would be my next film so that that was my inspiration actually at the museum sitting there with Graham and yes. listening to his story the story of his mother which he tells so eloquently and and the other lovely thing Graham as as with Molly, they were both very modest, and their modesty was also part of the charm, you know, of hearing the story. So that oh. was my inspiration. So it's it's a novel, but it's based on a on a true story. Why did you decide to fictionalise it? Well, I thought that rather than write a factual book, which would almost be you know a historical record of the ATA, which which has kind of been... I, I did some, a lot of research in the RAF Club Library in London, and there were there were many books about the, the factual story of the ATA. But it was Molly's particular story that I wanted to focus on. And being such an avid novel fan, and particularly 20th century history novel fan, I thought, well, why not romanticise this in a way and novelise and bring out the characters. My my partner, Andy, who's an ex-RAF squadron leader, and I wrote a screenplay first and foremost. So our plan was to make a film, and yeah. still is, and we are going to make a film. So we wrote the screenplay first. So, of course, that was, a, that was the origin. But then I thought, well, we actually were in production discussions with some quite big companies, actually, just before COVID. And then, of course, everything stopped. And I thought, well, I'm not going to sit around doing nothing. So I adapted the screenplay as a novel. I mean, it's now, you know, three times bigger and with a lot more character development, a lot more research. There was a huge amount of research because, as you quite rightly say, it's, it's, it's a historical story that's been novelised, so, but the facts, the facts have to be correct. Yes. And so the research was just endless. It was two, two years of research yeah. before novelising. The short answer to your question is it was originally a, f- a film concept. <laughs> so now you've written the book, will you go back to the original screen and change that slightly? have to. And that's my next step. Once the book's published, then I need to sit down with the screenplay 
and basically transfer all of the new material back into the screenplay and then go back into film mode of, of finding the the partners that we need to to make yeah. the film and it will be hopefully will be a big budget film right. it would have to be because of the the aircraft and the the scenes. Well, it definitely <laughs> definitely deserves to be a, a big film. So when I was going around the Heritage Centre and the, and the fabulous uh, museum when Grandma flew Spitfires, <laughs> yeah. I was I was looking at the logbooks that the ladies would write, and I was surprised yes. not only at the range of planes that they flew, but that each one was different, and they'd sit in the cockpit and just get a little book out to say, "Oh, how do you work this one?" Right, you've got half an hour looking at the instructions which was just amazing so what was it that surprised you during all this research what was it so that gave you the biggest surprise about these women and well that that was one of them one of them was that they they would literally jump into an aircraft having no experience of that aircraft sometimes never having flown that particular type before and they had a little blue book called the ferry pilot's notes list all the kind of procedures and even the idiosyncrasies of some of these these planes but but often they said when you if you've flown one plane you've flown them all which i don't actually can't quite see that but but uh, they they really did jump into and the some of them were big planes you know like lancaster wellington bombers and you know they're Pretty much you know, big handfuls, these, yeah. as well as the Spitfires, of course, yeah, the absolute, the, the pinnacle of their, their careers, the Spitfires, the planes that they all loved and, and adored, actually, and often referred to as a woman's aircraft because they said they were so perfectly beautiful to handle and the slightest touch one pilot actually said you didn't even have to move the the, the the steering mechanism you just had to think i want to go to the port side and off off it would go you know it was that sensitive which is incredible but the other thing is, um, is that they flew with no navigation equipment they flew with no radios and they flew with no weapon so they were up against incredible challenges to get from a to b which they did all day, every day. You know, they had to follow the roads and the railway lines and and often maps were difficult to come by at that time because they were all used for what was considered more important purposes. Incredible. And, you know, they had to rip maps out of library books. And <laughs> it's just so funny. And radio, there was radio silence, so they had no radio communication. Powerless to defend, defend themselves in the event of marauding German fighters which actually happened on several occasions they were fired at by our own anti-aircraft gunners on the ground you know there were, it was it was incredible yeah. that was the inspiration is this really possible you know can one be through it would never happen today can you imagine a pilot being yeah. given an aircraft that just that they've never flown <laughs> so i suppose of all the famous people amy johnson sort of stands yeah. out as our big aviatrix that but she died during an ata transport she did actually there's often been speculation about how that happened and why and what happened and and you know amy wasn't actually one of the the famous first eight which was the first eight women of the ATA, uh, which is actually my next book, by the way. Um, uh-huh. But the Amy was was just after the first eight, and there was some controversy actually about how she died because she did go down in the Thames. From from memory, there were some rumours that the rescue boat had actually collided with either her or the aircraft. I think someone else got drowned when they went to jumped uh-huh. into 
to to rescue her. There were there was a rumor that she had someone else with her in the cockpit. There were all sorts of conspiracy theories. So, but it's a very interesting story. But she certainly was a character. Yeah. She really was, as were many of the other girls. They were such characters, and that was the other beauty of the story. They were often, you know, a lot of them came from what one would call, I suppose, the you know the the, the upper echelons of society because they had access to planes and before the war so they were a fairly interesting group in the beginning but then of course as the ata grew there were pilots coming in from all over the world and and, and all kinds of backgrounds and it became such a an incredible mix there was no real kind of class distinction within the unit they they bonded together and protected each other and looked after each other and, they, and they, I mean, that was a beautiful thing about the, the the way they cared about each other it didn't matter where they were from or what background they had they they very much operated mm-hmm. as a team as a unit and that was lovely sharing information about the planes and the yeah. idiosyncrasies of the planes and looking out for each other the the ata story is a truly wonderful yeah, it's, it's absolutely it's brilliant to base it on such an important aspect of the war that is quite forgotten. But I did want to mention that the uh, women also got the same pay as the men, which was absolutely brilliant in those days. It was, actually. And, and they were the first, as far as I'm aware, they were the first organisation in England to yeah. achieve that equal pay comparison, which was wonderful. It was, uh, and that was through Pauline Gower, who... who kind of co-founded the ATA with Gerard Delanger and Gerard's Delanger's daughter Minnie Churchill wrote the forward, uh, the forward to my book but Pauline Gower was just an absolute she just didn't give up you know she lobbied for equal pay from the outset and eventually got it you know she yeah. was she lobbied for women to fly bigger and faster aircraft and eventually it happened you know she was just she didn't give up yeah. and that was another great inspirational story within the story you know another woman that just would not take no for an answer she was just willing to go for it and, and didn't stop until she achieved it well that's Fabulous. that's brilliant i think the Fabulous. the ata and your novel is a is a real uh, inspiration and i think we should all read it so thank you very much indeed paul thank you thank you so much well, as I mentioned earlier, um, since uh, since uh, the publication, there have been some developments about the story. And uh, the first is that, which I think is really, really nice, um, that a portrait of the brave and fearless Molly Rose is now hanging in the RAF club in Piccadilly, where Molly is now among the company of other brave pilots for whom we all owe a great debt of gratitude. Oh, that is good news, isn't it? Yeah, and that's great. And it's a lovely portrait as well. I've seen a picture of yeah. it, uh, and uh, she's a very striking woman in, in her um, in her uniform. Now, the second development, which again is is really exciting, I think. And uh, so, all you young ladies out there between seventeen and twenty four who are aspiring to be pilots. Pick up your ears here and listen, and get a pencil because you want to drop this down. The second development is that Paul. Um, in concert with RAF, his his, his uh, business partner, RAF squadron leader, who uh, retired, Andrew Rawcliffe, um, he also co-authored um, with Paul the screenplay for Atticos. They've established the Molly Rose Pilot Scholarship, which is valued at £15,000. Now, the scholarship was created by Aetheris Films, which is Paul's um, company, and funded by Marshall of Cambridge in association with the British Women Pilots Association. 
Association. And it is the only one of its kind in the UK which entirely funds every element of attaining a private pilot's licence. So that's really important. Now, the first winner, and this is really good, um, the first winner of the award is uh, Georgina Pescott, who is 18 years old and is from Cambridge. And I think this is also very fitting because Cambridge was the city where Molly Rose um, lived and came from. Now, Georgia uh, came first out of 42 applicants, um, all of the young women between um, 17 and 24. So I think big congratulations to Georgia, uh, Georgia for that. Absolutely. And I think that, um, so really, if for, this scholarship is for young for young women. So if, if you are aspiring to be a pilot, it's called the, the Molly Rose um, Pilot Scholarship. And I don't have an email address or a website, but I'm sure you can Google it. Yeah, because getting a pilot's so, license is just really expensive, uh, isn't it? Oh, it, yes, it is. I mean, it, it, it's it's really horrendous. I mean, you can, you know, once you've got the pilot, the license and then everything else, it's thousands and thousands, yeah. you know, which you have to hopefully get employed to help pay off. So yeah. that will be a big boost for, for, for any candidate. So now, as I mentioned, we've got a little bit of a reading uh, and this is, let's hear how Molly faced one of the many, many challenges that came her way on a daily basis. Atta Girls, Chapter 26, by Paul Olufsen Stab. As her Spitfire soared into the air, Molly had not felt quite so much enthusiasm for several months. The views over the English Channel were eerily peaceful, albeit through a scattering of low grey cloud which cloaked the airfield as she circled overhead. Molly pulled a map out of her boot and spread it on her knees, looking for the railway lines below. Rightio, step one, let's find some landmarks. No sooner than Molly had levelled out at her desired altitude, she noticed in her rearview mirror a speck approaching fast from across the channel, and it seemed to be getting bigger. Molly flashed back to her narrow escape from the rogue Luftwaffe Messerschmitt only a few months before, and how narrowly she had come close to being shot down. "'Oh, please, no, not again,' she said. "'I have nothing to fight you off with.' As the object approached, Molly nervously banked left, slightly lowered her altitude, and looked back and up to see what it was. God, you're fast, she said. Bloody hell, it's a buzz bomb. The dark black silhouette of the V-1 flying bomb, or doodlebug as they were commonly known, sped towards her on its murderous journey. Where are you going? It's either the docks or central London, she said. Well, wherever it is, we shall see about that. Molly knew that she had only a few seconds to react, as the speed of the V-1 flying bomb was much faster than her Spitfire, and she quickly made a decision to try and wing-tip it off course. Molly increased her speed and came up at approximately the same altitude as the V-1, which was rapidly approaching from behind, so that it would pass on her right side. The V-1's engine started pop-popping, and it miraculously and fortunately slowed, indicating that it would soon fall to the ground. Molly quickly realised it was heading for the London docks. Using all her skill, Molly positioned herself so that the V-1 would come slightly above and close to her right wing, and, as the terrifying black mass flew alongside, she manoeuvred her wingtip to within inches of the buzz bomb's left wing. In what seemed like a split-second opportunity, Molly prayed that she was not making the biggest mistake of her life. The dire consequences of her failing in her mission flashed like a bolt from the skies. Molly tipped her wings so that the two aircraft connected. The noise and shudder were a lot more than Molly expected, and she stopped breathing for a few moments, uneasy in the thought that she was perhaps doing more harm than good. 
but it seemed to work as the V1 suddenly veered off course and into a rapid descent towards the cold, grey, blue water of the River Medway estuary. A trail of black smoke emerged from the descending V1 and Molly banked around to see it crash in the water. Well, that was excellent. It really reminds me, actually, of um, my husband, whose birthday it is today. Happy birthday, Mike. Uh, Was on a Spitfire last year. And uh, he was just saying, just when you're up there, you can just see so far. And Mm. England looks so small. Um, (laughs) So, um, yes, that's a, that's brilliant and well done, Georgia, for getting uh, the very first uh, scholarship. That's really good news. This is only a test. The soundtrack to life in the Thames Valley. Great Scott. This is River Radio. <laughs> Spread the word. Oh, this is fantastic. You're listening to Turning Pages on River Radio with Heather and Julian. Thank you very much for joining us. So we are promoting books. That's the whole basis of our programme. And I was amazed at the number of wards in the publishing industry, and which is our topic for the rest of the programme. And, uh, and then again, when I thought about it, I thought what a great way it is of getting to hear about books, a celebration of the best. Because really, there are not that many newspapers and magazines that dedicate that much to uh, the new books that are being published. No, not really. Because <clears throat> I think, oh, pardon me. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. Um, I think you have to rely a lot of, of the weekend papers, really, for their review sections. And you're right. I don't think there is yeah. a sort of a literary magazine that springs to mind. No, um, no. You know. So uh, I think that prizes, um, because they, they sort of cover everything, don't they? So there's literature prizes, crime, romance, comedy, you name it. Every genre seems to have an award. Mm. Um, and then there are awards by librarians, independent bookshops, the industry, readers. I even spotted an award celebrating the year's most outstandingly awful scene of sexual description in an otherwise <laughs> good novel. So don't worry, the Bad Sex Award is not looking at pornography or anything unsavoury, but normal everyday fiction that we would pick up and read, but just where... The, the scenes are poorly written, redundant or just downright cringeworthy. A bit like the Golden Raspberry Awards, uh, you know, the Razzies, yes. which honour the worst film or performance of the year by otherwise reputable stars. So uh, equally, the, uh, the Bad Sex Awards is by otherwise reputable authors and somehow their writing gene just lets them, lets them down. In the bedroom. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> So what we thought we'd do is we'd just take a look at a couple of awards available and provide some background information for them um, so you can spot the books that they're recommending. So, Julian, uh, what have you chosen? Well, this morning, um, oh, excuse me, I've got a bit of a frog in my throat. Hang oh, on dear, moment. I'm sorry. Well, I've chosen um, the Costa Book Awards, uh, which was established as long ago as 1971 by the Whitbread Brewing Company. And it was originally named the Whitbread Book Awards at the time. Now, it changed its name to the Costa Book Awards in 2006, when Costa Coffee, which is a subsidiary of Whitbread, took over the sponsorship of the award. And then in 2012, um, it... uh, it, 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 
invented, if you like, or created a companion award um, that was established um, called the Costa Short Story Award. I think the, so, the link between drinking coffee and reading a book is actually really great. So I think that's a, a nice link, isn't it? It is, yeah. So probably when Whit- Whitbread did it, maybe it was a pint of bitter and a book in those days, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure how that goes down as well. <clears throat> yes. Now, unlike the Booker Prize, which was established two years before the Whitbread Book Awards, um, and the Booker is awarded uh, to one book only, the Costa Book Award has five prizes each year. Uh, one each for um, five categories, which is biography, children's books, first novel, novel and poetry. Now, Whilst the prizes are given for high literary merit, they are also given for works that are enjoyable to read and whose aim is to express and convey the enjoyment of reading to the widest possible audience, which I have to say is not necessarily the case with the Booker Prize, whose winning books are often very high-minded and quite difficult to digest. Although they do sell books, the Booker Prize journalist. Well, no, that is the point. And they sell books and, yes, and probably don't get read but anyway they sell the books that's the main thing but i I agree the costa the costa book awards are you can pick any of them up and you know that you're in for a good read exactly it's a good general it's a good general thing now of course um it it is an annual literary prize and it's awarded um to english language books written and i think this is interesting written by authors based in britain or ireland now the writers do not necessarily have to be British or Irish, but they must have lived in either Britain or Ireland for at least six months in each of the previous three years. Ah, right. So, okay. so you could be Belgian, you could be Austrian, you could be you could be from Nigeria. As long as you've been living for six months in Britain or Ireland for the past three years and have written a novel, you are eligible to be put forward for the prize, which I think is great. Now, the winning books are selected from a shortlist by five panels um, of judges, three judges per category. And the winner of a category receives £5,000 in prize money. Then the original panel of judges are joined by four new judges who then decide which one of the five books is going to be chosen to become that year's Costa Book of the Year. And the winner then receives a further lovely £30,000. Which is nothing to be sniffed at, is it? That's quite a good amount. So, So in fact, for the overall winner... Uh, of course, it, 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 it's a £35,000 because they'll have got 5000 for for their yep. first book and then the 30 on. Now, if you think, Heather, I'm sure you're sitting there thinking, oh, isn't this wonderful? All this money has been put together from the profits of selling coffee. Well, I'm sorry, Heather, you've been mistaken. Each book that's selected for the shortness to the poor old publisher has to cough up £5,000. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yes. No so such you, thing as a, no such thing as a free lunch. So yeah. if you're a small publisher, you're thinking, oh, I yeah. don't really want them no. to win. <laughs> well, exactly. But but it could be worth. I mean, because that can make or break. You yes, know, could, well, not yeah. not break, but that could be really something. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, so um, as you may imagine, imagine with a prize that's fifty-one years old, there have been many, many famous names um, over the past fifty-one years, um, but more contemporary. 
including, and not surprisingly, J.K. Rowling for Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, which he won in 1999 for uh, the children's category. Yeah. Um, the year before, Salman Rushdie won for the second time, won the uh, Costa for the second time, but this time was for the Moore's Last Sigh. And the same year, Michael Morpurgo won the children's award for his book, The Wreck of the Zanzibar. Now, in poetry, Ted Hughes won the Poetry Prize two years running in 1997 and 1998, and he became a bit of a filling in a, in a Seamus Heaney sandwich because Seamus Heaney had won in 96, and then he won again in 99 after Ted Hughes had his two years um, run. Um, and, and, and what I have to say, an, a mention has to be uh, made of the overall super prize contestant candidate um, par excellence, Hilary Mantel who, having won the Booker Prize in 2009 for Wolf Hall, then went on to win the Costa Book Award for her sequel, which was Bring Up the Bodies, in 2012, then went on to make history by scooping the Booker Prize for a second time for the same book in the October of that year. So that was uh, that was quite something for Hilary Mantel. Yes. Now, the, the category shortlist is usually announced in November each year, where, uh, with the category winners announced early the following January, and the winner of the Costa Book of the Year is announced on the 1st of February. Therefore, the winners of the 2021 intake, so to speak, uh, were announced in January and February this year. And so we'll give you a little run-through. So if you've got a pencil, well, we'll be mentioning it at the end of the programme. They are, now this is the one, the winner of the 2021 Costa Book of the Year Award, and, of course, the poet, well, not of course, but for Poetry Award as well, is for The Kids by Hannah Lowe, and it's published by Blood Axe Books. And this is uh, Hannah Lowe's third collection of poetry, and The Kids is um, a book of sonnets about... Um, teaching, learning and growing up and parenthood. And it draws on um, Hannah Lowe's experience uh, as a teacher in an inner city London school, um, um, sixth form school, um, during the, the 2000s. Yes. So the winner of the, the 2021 First Novel Award, which is obviously quite an important award, isn't it? Because you can get your, first, your debut novel as yes. a winner. You're, uh, yeah. Hopefully you're, um, your career is set. Yes. But this was won by Open Water by Cal- Caleb Azuma Nelson, published by Viking. And the story is that two young people meet at a pub in southeast London. Tentatively, tenderly, they fall in love. But the two people who seem to be destined to be together can still be torn apart by fear and violence. Open Water asks what it means to be a person in a world that sees you only as a black body, to be vulnerable when you're only respected for strength, to find safety in love only to lose it. Mm, indeed. And the winner of the 2021 Novel Award um, went to Claire Fuller for her novel Unsettled Ground, published by Fig Tree. And this is a really interesting one, I think. Um, when the, the, their elderly mother, Dot, dies suddenly, 51-year-old twins, Jean and Julius, are entirely unprepared for life without her um, in their rundown rural cottage. Now, they've been raised in isolation, away from the complexities of, uh, of the modern world, and they find themselves facing a and a landslide of debt, uh, as the web of secrets Dot had woven around them since the death of their father 40 years before threatens to tear their world Mm. apart. I think there's always secrets, aren't there? When parents die, you always find, Mm -hmm. hmm, 
Mm, that's interesting. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. Now, the winner of the Biography Award was Fall, The Mystery of Robert Maxwell by John Preston. Now, this is really interesting. It's the dramatic tale of the extraordinary rise and scandalous fall of Robert Maxwell. So he was born an Orthodox Jew. He escaped Nazi-occupied Czechoslovakia and fought in World War II and later becoming an MP and a successful as well as notorious media mogul. And of course, um, his daughter, Jelaine Maxwell, is currently in the press uh, awaiting her... Well, it's actually her. She's been convicted, but we just don't know what her... um, Sentence is. Sentence is Mm, going to mm. be. Anyway, uh, Robert Maxwell had a mysterious death. He um, fell from a from a boat and his empire disintegrated and long hidden debts and unscrupulous dealings came to light. And this book by uh, John Preston reveals what went so very, very wrong. Yes, indeed. <clears throat> and, that's, and that's published by Viking, I believe, I think, that one. That's yeah. right, yeah. Yeah. And the winner of the 2021 Children's Book Award um, goes to Manjeet Mann for her book, The Crossing, uh, published by Penguin. And it's about Nat's um, mum has just died and it's tearing her apart. Sammy must escape Eritrea for the chance of a new life in Europe. A twist of fate brings these teenagers from opposite worlds together and gives them both hope. But is hope enough to mend a broken world? And it's a profound story with very real tragedies of the refugee crisis. It's interesting how children's books can really dig deep into uh, major issues of the day. Indeed they can, indeed they can. Now, that was my my selection for the book awards. What have you chosen, Heather? Well, well, I mean, obviously there were so many to choose from. But despite being a huge fan of crime books, I don't think we mention crime books enough on the programme. So I am going to apologise for that. We do cover classic crime every now and again. Mm -hmm. But I thought I'd delve into the dirty belly of the underworld and talk about crime awards. Not least because I adore the whole concept of the name of these awards. So the Crime Writers Association, the CWA, have fantastically called their awards the Daggers. And the winners get an award, which is in the shape of a book with a dagger through the middle, which is just such a brilliant concept, I think. (laughs) (laughs) So the dagger in the library, bound to be the the murder weapon and um, location. So anyway, whoever came up with that idea, I just think it's brilliant. So every year they award 11 daggers in total. Now, seven of those are for books and short stories and judged independently by industry professionals. And the remaining awards are given for, your, for the author's body of work. So the Diamond Dagger, for example, is the most prestigious and is for lifetime contribution. So it includes authors such as Frederick Forsyth, Lindsay Davis and Lee Child. Now, it's interesting that they have a far broader remit than just crime. Um, So you can often see Frederick Forsyth, for example, I mentioned there as a winner of the Diamond Dagger. And um, he has come up because they also have something called the Ian Fleming Steel Dagger Award. And that's for the best in espionage or adventure thrillers. Another great titles for the various awards are the New Blood Dagger, which is awarded for the, the first time writer. And the Dagger in the Library Award for the writer whose body of work is popular with library users. And I think that's really interesting 
housing because libraries often really help support uh, authors, especially when they have series of books. Um, yeah. Uh, indeed, they, they do, and I think they—they they, in many ways the public lending libraries are the unsung heroes of of the publishing world. I mean, we tend to take them for granted, but they do have um, um, a significant influence on absolutely. on what's what's chosen and read. Yeah, absolutely. So the awards started. When did you say the Costa Booker Awards started? In the seventies, seventy one, and Booker was uh, sixty nine. Well. We've beaten oh. both of those. This These awards started in 1955. Wow. Less than two years after the um, Crime Writers Association was started. And John Creasy started the association. And I hadn't heard of this gentleman, but he was a master crime writer himself, writing over 500 novels. And more than 80 million copies of his works have been sold. And I think what's really sweet is that he also garnered 782 rejection slips. So it just shows you that when he went on to sell 80 million copies and... Five, over 500 novels it just shows you that perseverance counts exactly and i hope he sent to 760 or 82 publishers a yabu sucks note to them and say <laughs> <Yes>. ah. <laughs> so do i so do i but by starting the association and then starting the awards he's not only been an amazing storyteller himself but he's really provided a service to to the industry and to mm. the readers and to the readers so let me tell you about last year's um, Dagger Award winners. Then, so the most uh, the 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 most esteemed dagger, the Diamond Dagger, which commemorates a writer for a lifetime contribution to crime writing, was Martina Cole. So she's of course the queen of crime drama, with more than twenty novels to her name of which a dozen of those have been number one bestsellers. She's just a phenomenon. She continues to smash sales records with each of her books. And she sold about 13 million copies. And in 2011, she surpassed the £50 million sales mark since, that, uh, since records began. And so she was the first British female novelist for adult audiences to achieve this. And she spent more weeks in the number one slot on the original fiction bestseller list than any other adult novelist. So I think that's absolutely fantastic. So her latest book is Two Women. And Susan Dalston kills her husband in a final act of desperation. Banged up in Holloway, all that keeps her sane is knowing that her children are now safe from the man who terrorised them. What she can't predict is that the bonds she forms on the inside might just make or break her. Gosh. Well, the golden, uh, the gold dagger um, went to We Begin at the End by Chris Whitaker, and now Cape Haven, California. It's a pretty uh, town of broken souls. Its chief cop clings to the past as his body fails. A drunk former beauty can barely care for the, for the children she loves, and her fierce 13-year-old daughter, Duchess Day Radley, imagines herself an outlaw willing to do anything to defend her little brother. It's been described as a vibrant, engrossing, unputdownable thriller that packs a serious emotional punch. That sounds good. So the mm. Ian Fleming steel dagger uh, is won by uh, Michael Rothbotham uh, when she was good. So he began his writing career as an investigative journalist. And so this book is a gripping follow-on from Good Girl, Bad Girl, 
um, which he has uh, previously published. So six years ago, Evie Cormack was found hiding in a secret room in the aftermath of a shocking crime. But nobody has ever discovered her real name or where she came from, because everybody who tries ends up dead. Forensic psychologist Cyrus Heaven, Haven believes the truth will set Evie free. So ignoring her warnings, he begin, begins digging into her past, only to disturb a hornet's nest of corrupt and powerful people who've been waiting to find Evie, the last witness to their crimes. That sounds great. It does. Yes, it does. Quite gripping, I have to yes. say. Yes. Now, uh, to honour the man that um, that created the um, the uh, association and the awards, the John Creasy New Blood Dagger Award uh, went to The Creek on the Stairs by Ava Björg Egistotir, translated by Victoria Cribb. And I'm just going to make a point here. Yeah. I notice that you always keep giving me the authors <laughs> with the most complicated surnames <laughs> to talk about. I, I, know, I know what you... I've, I've caught you out. I know what you're up to. <laughs> You spotted me. <laughs> <laughs> well, as for, in, in case anybody knows, um, Ava Björn is, uh, is, in fact, um, uh, Icelandic. And her book is set on a deserted lighthouse and a murdered woman sets the scene for this haunting and compelling mystery where the dark secrets of a small town are shockingly exposed, as chilling and as atmospheric as an Icelandic winter. Yes, there's something about Icelandic mystery drama crime stories isn't it there is yes and and well in fact also um, as as i was corrected many many years ago um because you can't um include iceland in scandinavia oh, so you have, yes. to, you have right. to refer to it as a nordic country ah, right. so it's one of the nordic um genre of crime ah. so yeah no absolutely atmospheric and well worth reading so Midnight at Malabar House by Vasim Khan wins the Historical Dagger Award. And it's all about the stabbing of an English gentleman at a New Year's Eve party in the early hours of 1950. Sounding like a Golden Age murder mystery. Mm. And Murder at Malabar House has all the suspects, twists and red herrings that we'd all expect. But this is India just after partition. And the leading character is the deftly drawn Persis Wadia, the country's first female detective. A wonderful creation. And this is a hugely enjoyable book. Indeed, it does sound wonderful. Uh, and I often think that um, I wish, which I've actually uh, coined, but um, I wish uh, Poirot, when he came across the red herring, would say, ah, but it is a Bismarck Rouge. <laughs> <laughs> Have a think about that one. (laughs) Then we come to the dagger in the library, uh, Peter May. Now, Peter May is a multi-award winning author um, of books and include the Lewis trilogy set in the Outer Hebrides of Scotland. Then he has the China uh, thrillers featuring the Beijing detective Li Yan and the American forensic pathologist Margaret Campbell. Then we have the Enzo Files featuring Scottish forensic scientist Enzo McLeod. Interesting, though, it's a Scottish forensic scientist. They're, They're set in France. And he's one of Scotland's most prolific television dramatists. And he's garnered more than an amazing thousand, 1,000 credits in the past 15 years as a script writer and script editor on primetime British television drama before quitting to focus on his true love of writing. 
Now, um, his breath, uh, breakthrough as a best-selling author came with the Lewis trilogy. Uh, after being turned down, here we go again, by all the major UK publishers. And the first of the Lewis trilogy, The Black House, was published in France and hailed as a masterpiece by the French national newspaper L'Humanité. Now, his latest book is The Night Gate, which I think sounds really good, which is in par with the Enzo McLeod investigations. Well, I've got to say, if he was turned down by all the UK publishers and then picked up in France, mm. no wonder he's going to set um, his, his stories in, or some of his stories in France. That's very true. As a, as as a um, as a thank you, I would like to think you know that yes. for, for for helping um, launch his career. Yeah. But it's interesting, isn't it, that um, that it was a, a French publisher that took it up? Yes, isn't it yeah. just? Uh, but also, but also, I'd, I'd like to say that um, then congratulations to his literary agent, if he had one, that was obviously not daunted by this and thought, well crumbs you know there's a wider world out there um yes. and, and and bearing in mind i you know p- that perhaps the publisher you know accepted the manuscript in english rather than in french and then yes had to do the work and then translate so i think that's yeah um hats off to him i yeah. think it's fantastic yeah i think yeah. he's now won lots of uh awards in uh, in france and he lives part of the part of the year as you would if you could uh over there in the sunshine Oh, yes, down in Provence somewhere. Wouldn't it be lovely? Yes, mm. wouldn't, wouldn't it be lovely? So that's yeah. a great selection of uh, of crime books. And we really ought to uh, focus more on uh, on crime books, I think, in, uh, in yeah. the programme. Yes, I, th- I think you're right. And, I, and, and I'm, I'm pleased that you chose um, the, the Dagger Awards because out of the slew of, of, of uh, other awards that we have, I mean, it's one that sort of doesn't, you know, spring to mind except for maybe um, a sort of rarefied group of, of, of um you know crime readers yes. uh, in the circle so i think that was really because people say oh, book awards well book you know uh, the booker jumps to mind yes. immediately and of course on the international um side then of course the nobel prize for literature where something which is quite specific so yeah maybe we should come back and look at other awards because you know there are the there are other um you know there's the children's awards as well the very specific ones so yes i think we should and certainly spend some time um talking about um murder mystery yeah, absolutely, yes. Now, I just wanted to mention before we leave that we had a bit of an excitement in Marlowe yesterday. Oh, did you indeed? Well, excitement in well, Marlowe. Well, yes, when I say excitement, do I really mean inconvenience? Because we had some <laughs> filming filming on the bridge. So the little, um, the little bridge that runs over the Thames uh, between Bism and Marlowe is only a little narrow thing anyway. And yesterday they were filming Great Expectations. Oh, right. Is, the, that's the, the, the lovely um, bridge over the, next to the parish church. Yes, Is that's, coming, that's coming to the town. Oh, that's lovely. Right. How nice. Yes, it was nice. So they were covering the uh, the road surface with lots of gravel, so presumably so they couldn't see any oh, painted yes. road marks. Yes. Uh, now, unfortunately, I only experienced the inconvenience because I was going somewhere so i didn't enjoy the delights of seeing whatever they were filming i saw a before and an after when they were shoveling it out when they were pushing it all out and then sweeping it all up and you've also got to take um, take great care of those horrible bollardy things that they now put on the bridge that are designed to scrape your car to shreds as the, you go over both the teeth, sides. The teeth of death, yes. I'm, I'm yes. not sure they didn't work out. I couldn't see how they were going to cover those up, so possibly it was just somebody walking on the bridge. <laughs> yes, maybe passing them off as some sort of devilish Victorian invention. <laughs> 
<laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Books we've been recommending today are The Wim Hof Method by Wim Hof, published by Ryder. And we've been uh, recommending Anthony Horowitz with A Mind to Kill, published by Jonathan Cape. Moon Tiger by Penelope Lively, published by Penguin. And then we have Atta Girls by Paul Olufsen Stab, published by Aetheris Publishing. The Kids by Hannah Lowe, Blood Axe Books. Open Water by Caleb Azuma Nelson, Viking. Unsettled Ground by Claire Fuller, Fig Tree. And then we have Fall, The Mystery of Robert Maxwell by John Preston, published by Viking. And The Crossing by Manjeet Mann, published by Penguin. And then we have We Begin at the End by Chris Whitaker, published by Zaffer Books. And Martina Cole, Two Women, published by Headline. And then we have The um, Creek of the Stairs by Ava Björg Egestotir, translated by Victoria Cribb, which is published by Arenda Books. And Hodder and, oh, sorry, uh, When She Was Good by Michael Roberton, published by Scribner. Um, and then we have Midnight of Malabar House uh, by Paul uh, by Vasim Khan, published by Hodder. So thank you for listening to Turning Pages on River Radio today. Do tell all your friends. And we're always interested in receiving your recommendations of books to share. So don't forget, we can listen to us every Wednesday between 11 and 12 and catch up with us again on Listen Again Feature. And next week, a special treat, a reading of Pride and Prejudice. Um, can